0: 17. Muscular control of pharynx, afferent and afferent connect with the back surface of the tongue and with the muscles of the pharynx. 8. The 10th pair vagus, or pneumogastric, nerves, nerves of feeling and of muscular control, afferent and afferent connect with the heart, larynx, lungs, and stomach. They have the widest distribution of any of the cranial nerves. 9. The 11th pair spinal accessory nerves, control muscles of neck, afferent connect with the muscles of the neck. Ten. The twelfth pair hypoglossal nerves, control muscles of the tongue, efferent connect with the muscles of the tongue, sympathetic ganglia and nerves. The sympathetic ganglia are found in different parts of the body, and vary in size from those which are half an inch in diameter to those that are smaller than the heads of pins. The largest and most important ones are found into chains which lie in front, and a little to either side, of the spinal column and extend from the neck to the region of the pelvis figures 125 and 133. The number of ganglia in each of these chains is about 24. They are connected on either side by the right and left sympathetic nerves which extend vertically from ganglion to ganglion. In addition to the ganglia forming these chains, important ones are found in the head outside of the cranial cavity and in the plexuses of the thorax and the abdomen. The sympathetic ganglia receive nerves from the central division of the nervous system. But connect with glands, blood vessels, and the intestinal walls through fibers from their own cell bodies. Some of these latter fibers join the spinal nerves, and some blend with each other to form small sympathetic nerves. Protection of brain and spinal cord. On account of their delicate structure, the brain and spinal cord require the most complete protection. In the first place, they are surrounded by the bones of the head and spinal column. These not only shield them from the direct effects of physical force, but by their peculiar construction, prevent, to a large degree, the passage of jars and shocks to the parts within. In the second place, they are surrounded by three separate membranes, as follows 1. The dura, or dura mater, a thick, dense, and tough membrane which lines the bony cavities and forms supporting partitions. 2. The pia, or pia mater, a thin, delicate membrane, containing numerous blood vessels, that covers the surface of the brain and cord. 3. The arachnoid, a membrane of loose texture, that lies between the dura and the pin. Finally, within the spaces of the arachnoid is a lymph-like liquid which completely envelops the brain and the cord, and which, by serving as a watery cushion, protects them from jars and shocks. Thus the brain and cord are directly shielded by bones, by membranes, and by the liquid which surrounds them. They are also protected from jars resulting from the movements of the body by the general elasticity of the skeleton. Summary. The nervous system establishes connections between all parts of the body, and provides a stimulus by means of which they are controlled. It is made up of a special form of cells, called neurons. The neurons form the different divisions of the nervous system, and also serve as the active agents in carrying on its work. Through a side-by-side method of joining they form the nerves. Ganglia spinal cord, and brain, and by a method of end-to-end joining they connect places remote from each other, and provide for nervous movements through the body. The nervous system, may in some respects be compared to a complicated system of telephony, in which the chains of neurons correspond to the wires, and the brain and spinal cord to the central station. Exercises. 1. Give the meaning of the term, coordination. Supply illustrations. 2. What two general conditions are supplied in the body by the nervous system? 3. Compare the skeleton outline of the nervous system with the bony skeleton. 4. Sketch outlines of bone axonic and diaxonic neurons. 5. Give two differences between the neurons and the other cells of the body. 6. Describe the two general methods of connecting neurons in the body. What purpose is accomplished by each method? 7. Name and locate the principal divisions of the nervous system. 8. Draw an outline of the brain side view, locating each of its principal divisions. 9. If a pencil were placed over the ear, what portions of the brain would be above it and what below? 10. Describe briefly the cerebrum, the cerebellum, the midbrain, the pons, and the bulb. 11. Locate and describe the cortex. State purpose of the convolutions. 12. State the general differences between the cranial and the spinal nerves. Thirteen. Locate and give the number of the dorsal root ganglia. Locate and give the approximate number of the sympathetic ganglia. 14. Show how the two portions of the spinal nerves are formed the one from the monaxonic and the other from the diaxonic neurons. 15. Enumerate the different agencies through which the brain and spinal cord are protected. 16. What cranial nerves contain afferent fibers? What ones contain afferent fibers? What ones contain both afferent and afferent fibers? 17. In what respects is the nervous system similar to a system of telephony? In what respects is it different? Practical work Examine a model of the brain. Identifying the different divisions and noting the position and relative size of the different parts Figure 137. Observe the convolutions of the cerebrum and compare these with the parallel ridges of the cerebellum. If the model is dissectable, study the arrangement of the cell body's gray matter and the distribution of the fiber bundle's white matter. Note the connection of the cranial nerves with the underside. Figure 137 Figure 137 Model 4 Demonstrating the Brain dissectable. A prepared nervous system of a frog such as may be obtained from supply houses should also be examined. Observe the appearance and general distribution of the nerves and their connection with the brain and spinal cord. If such a preparation is not at hand, some small animal may be dissected to show the main divisions of the nervous system. As follows, dissection of the nervous system by the teacher. For this purpose a half-grown cat is generally the best available material. This should be killed with chloroform and secured to a board as in the dissection of the abdomen. Page 169. Open the abdominal cavity and remove the contents. Tying the elementary canal where it is cut. And washing out any blood which may escape. Dissect for the nervous system in the following order. 1. Cut away the front of the chest. Exposing the heart and lungs. Find on each side of the heart a nerve which passes by the side of the pericardium to the diaphragm. These nerves assist in controlling respiration and are called the phrenic nerves. Find other nerves going to different parts of the thorax. 2. Remove the heart and lungs. Find in the back part of the thoracic cavity. On each side of the spinal column, a number of small knots of nervous matter joined together by a single nerve. These are sympathetic ganglia, where the neck joins the thorax. Find two sympathetic ganglia much larger than the others. 3. Cut away the skin from the shoulder and upper side of the foreleg. By separating the muscles and connective tissue where the leg joins the thorax. Find several nerves of considerable size. These connect with each other, forming a network called the brachial plexus. From here nerves pass to the thorax and to the foreleg. 4. From the brachial plexus trace out the nerves which pass to different parts of the foreleg. In doing this separate the muscles with the fingers and use the knife only where it is necessary to expose the nerves. Note that some of the branches pass into the muscles, while others connect with the skin. 5. Remove the skin from the upper portion of one of the hind legs and separate the muscles carefully until a large nerve is found. This is one of the divisions of the sciatic nerve. Carefully trace it to the spinal cord, cutting away the bone where necessary, and find the connections of its branches with the cord. Then trace it toward the foot, discovering its branches to different muscles and to the skin. 6. And join the neck and remove the head. Examine the spinal cord where exposed. Cut away the bone sufficiently to show the connection between the cord and one of the spinal nerves. On the dorsal root of one of the nerves find a small ganglion. What is it called? 7. Fasten the head to a small board and remove the scalp. Saw through the skull bones in several directions. Pry off the small pieces of bones. Exposing the upper surface of the brain, study its membranes, convolutions, and divisions. 8. With a pair of bone forceps, or nippers, break away the skull until the entire brain can be removed from the cavity. Examine the different divisions, noting the relative position and size of the parts. 9. With a sharp knife cut sections through the different parts, showing the positions of the gray matter and of the white matter. Note. If the entire class is to examine one specimen, It is generally better to have the dissecting done beforehand and the parts separated and tacked to small boards. This will permit of individual examination. Sketches of the sciatic nerve, brachial plexus, and of sections through the brain and spinal cord should be made. Location of nerves in the body. Several of the nerves of the body lie sufficiently near the surface to be located by pressure and are easily recognized as sensitive cords. Slight pressure from the fingers reveals the presence of nerves in the grooves of the elbow the crazy bone between the muscles on the inner side of the arm near the shoulder, and in the hollow part of the leg back of the knee. These are all large nerves. Small nerves may be located in the same manner in the face and neck. Chapter X. V. I. I. Physiology of the nervous system In the preceding chapter was planned out the method by which the different parts of the body are brought into communication by the neurons or nerve cells. We are now to study the means whereby the neurons are made to control and coordinate the different parts of the body and bring about the necessary adjustment of the body to its surroundings. This work of the neurons naturally has some relation to their properties. Properties of neurons. The work of the neurons seems to depend mainly upon two properties the property of irritability and the property of conductivity. Irritability was explained, in the study of the muscles page 243, as the ability to respond to a stimulus. It has the same meaning here, the neurons, however, respond more readily to stimuli than do the muscles and are therefore more irritable. Moreover, they are stimulated by all the forces that induce muscular contraction and by many others besides, they are by far the most irritable portions of the body. Conductivity is the property which enables the effect of a stimulus to be transferred from one part of a neuron to another, on account of this property, an excitation, or disturbance. In any part of a neuron is conducted or carried to all the other parts. Thus a disturbance at the distant ends of the dendrites causes a movement toward the cell body and, reaching the cell body, the disturbance is passed through it into the axon. This movement through the neuron is called the nervous impulse. Purpose of the impulse. Though the nature of the nervous impulse is not understood, 103 its purpose is quite apparent. It is the means employed by the nervous system for controlling and coordinating the different parts of the body. The arrangement of the neurons enables impulses to be started in certain parts of the nervous system, and the property of conductivity causes them to be passed as stimuli to other parts. This enables excitation at one place to bring about action at another place, acting as stimuli. The impulses seem able to produce two distinct effects, first, to throw resting organs into action and to increase the activity of organs already at work, and second, to diminish the rate, or check entirely. The activity of organs. Impulses producing the first effect are called excitant impulses, those producing the second effect. Inhibitory impulses. Functions of the parts of neurons. The cell body serves as a nutritive center from which the other parts derive nourishment. Proof of this is found in the fact that when any part of the neuron is separated from the cell body, it dies. While the cell body and the parts attached to the cell body may continue to live. In addition to this the cell body probably reinforces the nervous impulse. The dendrites serve two purposes, first, they extend the surface of the cell body, thereby enabling it to absorb a greater amount of nourishment from the surrounding lymph, second, they act as receivers of stimuli from other neurons, the same impulse does not pass from one neuron to another, an impulse in one neuron, however, is able to excite the neuron with which it makes an end-to-end connection, so that a series of impulses is produced along a given nerve path figure 129. The special function of the axon is to transmit the impulse. By its length, structure, and property of conductivity it is especially adapted to this purpose. The axis cylinder, however, is the only part of the axon concerned in the transmission. The primitive sheath and the medullary layer protect the axis cylinder, and, according to some authorities, serve to insulate it. The medullary sheath may also aid in the nourishment of the axis cylinder. Nerve stimuli. While the properties of irritability and conductivity supply a necessary cause for the production and transmission of nervous impulses, these alone are not sufficient to account for their origin. An additional cause is necessary a force not found in the nerve protoplasm, but one which, by its action on the protoplasm, makes it produce the impulse. In this respect, the neuron does not differ essentially from the cell of a muscle, just as the muscle cell requires a stimulus to make it contract. So does the neuron require a stimulus to start the impulse. Hence, in accounting for the activities of the body, it is not sufficient to say they are caused by nervous impulses. We must also investigate the nerve stimuli the means through which the nervous impulses are started. Most of these are found outside of the body and are known as external stimuli. Action of External Stimuli In the arrangement of the nervous system the most favorable conditions are provided for the reception of external stimuli. Not only do vast numbers of neurons terminate at the surface of the body, 104 but they connect there with delicate structures, called sense organs. The purpose of the sense organs is to sensitize make sensitive the terminations of the neurons. This they do by supplying special structures through which the stimuli can act to the best advantage upon the nerve endings. Moreover, there are different kinds of sense organs, and these cause the neurons to be sensitive to different kinds of stimuli acting through the sense organs adapted for receiving them. Light, sound, heat, cold, and odors all act as stimuli for starting impulses. Indeed, the arrangement is so complete that the nervous system is subjected to the action of external stimuli in some form practically all the time. The work of the sense organs is further considered in chapters XX, XXI, and XXII. How External Stimuli Act on Internal Organs For stimulating the neurons not connected with the body surface we are dependent, so far as known, upon the nervous impulses. An impulse started by the external stimulus goes only so far as its neuron extends, but it serves as a stimulus for the neuron with which the first connects and starts an impulse in this connecting neuron, the point of stimulation being where the fiber terminations of the first neuron make connection with the dendrites of the second, this impulse in turn stimulates the next neuron, and so on producing a series of impulses along a given nerve path. In this way the effect of an external stimulus may reach and bring about action in any part of the body. This is in brief the general plan of inducing action in the various organs of the body. This plan, however, is varied according to circumstances, and at least three well-defined forms of action are easily made out. These are known as reflex action, voluntary action, and secondary reflex action. Reflex action. When some sudden or strong stimulus acts upon the nerve terminations at the surface of the body, an immediate response is frequently observed in some quick movement, the jerking away of the hand on accidentally touching a hot stove, the winking of the eyes on sudden exposure to danger, and the quick movements from slight electrical shocks are familiar examples. The explanation of reflex action is that external stimuli start impulses in neurons terminating at the surface of the body and these, in turn, excite impulses in neurons which pass from the spinal cord or brain to the muscles figure 138. Since there is an apparent turning back of the impulses by the cord or brain, the resulting movements are termed reflex. 105 figure 138 figure 138 diagram illustrating reflex action of an external organ, reflex action and the mind. If one carefully studies the reflex actions of his own body, he will find that they occur at the time or even a little before the time, that he realizes what has happened, if the feather is brought in contact with the more sensitive parts of the face of a sleeping person, there is a twitching of the skin and sometimes a movement of the hand to remove the offending substance, surgeons operating upon patients completely under the influence of chloroform, and therefore completely unconscious, had observed strong reflex actions. These and other similar cases indicate clearly that reflex action occurs independently of the mind that the mind neither causes nor controls it. If the further proof of this fact were needed, it is supplied by experiments upon certain of the lower animals, 106 which live for a while after the removal of the brain. These experiments show that the nervous impulses that produce reflex action need only pass through the spinal cord and do not reach the cerebrum, the organ of the mind, the reflex action pathway. My study of the impulses that produce any reflex action, a rather definite pathway may be made out, having the following divisions, one, from the surface of the body to the central nervous system, usually the spinal cord, this, the afferent division, is made up of deaxonic neurons, and these have in the case of the spinal nerves their cell bodies in the dorsal root ganglia page 295. They are acted upon by external stimuli, while their impulses in turn act on the neurons in the spinal cord, 2. Through the central system spinal cord or base of brain, this, the intermediate division, may be composed of monaxonic neurons, or it may consist of branches from the afferent neurons. In the case of separate neurons, these are acted upon by impulses from the afferent neurons, while their impulses serve in turn as stimuli to other neurons within the cord figure 129. 3. From the central nervous system to the muscles, this, the afferent division, is made up of monaxonic neurons. Most of these have their cell bodies in the gray matter of the cord, while their fibers pass into the spinal nerves by the ventral roots. 107 They may be stimulated by impulses either from the intermediate neurons, or from branches of the afferent neurons. Their impulses reach and stimulate the muscles. Reflex action and digestion, the flowing of the saliva, when food is present in the mouth, is an example of reflex action. In this case, however, The organ excited to activity is a gland instead of a muscle. The food starts the impulses, and these, acting through the bulb, reach and stimulate the salivary glands. In a similar manner food excites the glands that empty their fluids into the stomach and intestines, and stimulates the muscular coats of these organs to do their part in the digestive process. To a considerable extent, neurons having their cell bodies in the sympathetic ganglia are concerned in these actions figure 139. Figure 139 Figure 139 diagram illustrating reflex action in its relation to the food canal. The nerve path in this case includes sympathetic neurons. Reflex action in the circulation of the blood. On sudden exposure to cold, the small arteries going to the skin quickly diminish in size. Check the flow of blood to the surface and prevent too great a loss of heat. In this case, Impulses starting at the surface of the body are transmitted to the bulb and then through the efferent neurons to the muscles in the walls of the arteries. In a somewhat similar manner, heat leads to a relaxation of the arterial walls and an increase in the blood supply to the skin. Other changes in the blood supply to different parts of the body are also of the nature of reflex actions. As in the work of digestion, neurons having their cell bodies in the sympathetic ganglia aid in the control of the circulation. Purposes of reflex action The examples of reflex action so far considered illustrate its two main purposes one protection, and two a means of controlling important processes. The pupil has but to study carefully the reflex actions of his own body for a period, say of two or three weeks, in order to be convinced of their protective value. He will observe that portions of his body have, on exposure to danger, been moved to places of safety, while in some instances, like falling, his entire body has been adjusted to new conditions, he will also find that reflex action is quicker, and for that reason offers in some cases better protection, than movements directed by the mind, in digestion and circulation are found the best examples of the control of important processes through reflex action, voluntary action, it is observed that reflex action, in the sense that it has so far been considered, is not the usual mode of action of the external organs, but island instead, A kind of emergency action, due to unusual conditions and excitation by strong stimuli. Voluntary actions, on the other hand, represent the ordinary, or normal, action of these organs. They comprise the movements of the body of which we are conscious and which are controlled by the mind. But while they are of a higher order than reflex actions and are under intelligent direction, they are brought about in much the same manner. Voluntary action pathways differ in but one essential respect from those of reflex action they pass through the cerebrum, the organ of the mind figure 140, this is necessary in order that the mind may control the action, from all portions of the body surface, afferent pathways may be traced to the cerebrum, and from the cerebrum afferent pathways extend to all the voluntary organs, a complex system of intermediate neurons, found mostly in the brain, join the afferent with the afferent pathways, the voluntary pathways are not distinct from, but include, reflex pathways, a fact which explains why the same external stimulus may excite both reflex and voluntary action figure 141, figure 140 figure 140 diagram of a voluntary action pathway, choice in voluntary action, in reflex action a given stimulus, acting in a certain way, produces each time the same result, this is not the case with voluntary action, the difference being due to the mind, in these actions the external stimulus first excites the mind, and the resulting mental processes perhaps as memory of previous experiences supply a variety of facts, any of which may act as stimuli to action, before the action takes place, however, some one fact must be singled out from among the mental processes excited, this fact becomes the exciting stimulus and leads to action, it follows, therefore, that the action which finally occurs is not necessarily the result of an immediate external stimulus, but of a selected stimulus one which is the result of choice. Figure 141 Figure 141 Diagram of Voluntary Action Pathways Including reflex pathways, not only does the element of choice enter into the selection of the proper stimulus, but it also enters into the time, nature, and intensity of the action. For these reasons it is frequently impossible to trace voluntary actions back to their actual stimuli. The pupil will recognize the element of choice in such simple acts as picking up some object from the street, complying with a request, and purchasing some article from a store. Reflex and voluntary action compared, certain likenesses and differences, already suggested in these two forms of action, may now be more fully wound out. Reflex and voluntary action are alike in that the primary cause of each is some outside force or condition which has impressed itself upon the nervous system. They are also alike in the general direction taken by the impulses in producing the action. The impulses are, first, from the surface of the body to the central nervous system, second, through the central system, and third, from the central nervous system to the active tissues of the body. Their chief differences are to be found, first, in the pathways followed by the impulses, which are through the cerebrum the organ of the mind involuntary action, but in reflex action are only through the spinal cord or the lower parts of the brain. And second, in the fact that voluntary action is under the direction of the mind, while reflex action is not, it would seem, therefore, that the statement sometimes made that, voluntary action is reflex action plus the mind, is not far from correct, mind, however, is the important factor in this kind of action, secondary reflex action, everyday experience teaches that any voluntary action becomes easier by repetition. A given act performed a number of times under conscious direction establishes a condition in the nervous system that enables it to occur without that direction and very much as reflex actions occur. Actions of this kind are known as secondary reflex actions, or as acquired reflexes. Walking, writing, and numerous other movements pertaining to the occupation which one follows are examples of such reflexes. These activities are at first entirely voluntary, but by repetition they gradually become reflex requiring only the stimulus to start them. The advantages to the body of its acquired reflexes are quite apparent. The mind does not have to attend to the selection and direction of stimuli and, to that extent, is left free for other work. A good example of this is found in writing, where the mind apparently gives no heat to the movements of the hand and is only concerned in what is being written. The student will easily supply other illustrations of the advantages of secondary reflex action. The development of secondary reflexes probably consists in the establishment of fixed pathways for impulses through the nervous system. Through the branching of the nerve fibers many pathways are open to the impulses. But in repeating the same kind of action the impulses are guided into particular paths or channels. In time these paths become so well established that the impulses flow along them without conscious direction and it is then simply necessary that some stimulus starts the impulses by following the established pathways. These reach the right destination and produce the desired result. According to this view, secondary reflex action is but a higher phase of ordinary reflex action a kind of reflex action, the conditions of which have been established by the mind through repetition. See functions of the cerebellum. Page 317. Habits. People are observed to act differently when exposed to the same conditions, or when acted upon by the same stimuli. This is explained by saying they have different habits. By habits are meant certain general modes of action that have been acquired by repetition. Certain acts repeated again and again have established conditions in the nervous system which enable definite forms of action to be excited, somewhat after the manner of reflex action, on account of habits. Therefore, the actions of the individual are more or less predisposed. What he will do under certain conditions may be foretold from his habits. Habits simply represent. A higher order of secondary reflexes those more closely associated with the mental life and character than are the lower forms. Habits, in common with other forms of secondary reflex action, serve the important purpose of economizing the nervous energy. However, if pernicious habits are formed instead of those that are full, they are detrimental from both a moral and physical standpoint. Youth is recognized as the period in which fundamental habits are formed and character is largely determined. Therefore parents and teachers do wisely when they insist upon the formation of right habits by the young, functions of divisions of the nervous system, the relationship between the different parts of the nervous system is very close and one part does not work independently of other parts, at the same time the general work of the nervous system requires that its different divisions serve different purposes, 1. The peripheral divisions of the nervous system are concerned in the transmission of impulses between the surface of the body and the central system and between the central system and the active tissues. The nerves are the carriers of the impulses. The ganglia contain the cell bodies which serve as nutritive centers, and, in the case of the sympathetic ganglia, these cell bodies are the places where the fiber terminations of one neuron connect with, and stimulate, other neurons, to, the gray matter in the spinal cord, bulb, pons and midbrain through the cell bodies, fiber terminations, and short neurons which they contain completes the reflex action pathways between the surface of the body and the voluntary muscles, and also between the surface of the body and the organs of circulation and digestion. 3. The white matter of the spinal cord, bulb, pons, and midbrain by means of the fibers of which they are largely composed forms connections with, and passes impulses between, the various parts of the central nervous system. 4. The bulb, because of certain special reflex action pathways completed through it, is the portion of the central nervous system concerned in the control of respiration, circulation, and the secretion of liquids, work of the sympathetic ganglia and nerves. The neurons which form these ganglia aid in controlling the vital processes, especially digestion and circulation. These neurons are controlled for the most part by fibers from the bulb and spinal cord, and cano,